Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hi, I'm John Molesky, and this is America's 360, a program brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies, the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. And America's 360 is a collaboration among the center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. It's been said that when it rains, it pours, and that certainly sums up what many nations have been experiencing in a summer marked by record rainfall and subsequent devastating and deadly flooding. And apparently, when it burns, it rages, as wildfires induced by record heat waves have destroyed vast acreage in the Americas and elsewhere around the world. Recent droughts and fires in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest alone have killed nearly 2.5 billion trees, greatly hampering the forest's function as a carbon sink. These events, as well as historic droughts throughout Mexico and South America, have placed a spotlight on discussions about climate change and its impacts on the region. And that's where we'll be focusing our America's 360 spotlight as well, so let's bring in our panel. Please say hello to Argentina Project Director Benjamin Gaden. Greetings, John. Brazil Institute Associate and Slater Family Fellow Anya Prusa. Hi, John. Canada Institute Director Christopher Sands. Hello, bonjour, John. Latin American Program Director Cindy Arnson. Hi, John. And Mexico Institute Director Andrew Rudman. Hi, John. Great to hear from all of you. Anya, if we could, let's begin in Brazil since we invoked the rainforests, the Amazon. Uh, for four consecutive months, the uh, uh, temperatures on the rise, fires spreading. How or is the Brazilian government responding? Well, John, Brazil is on track for a record year uh, when it comes to deforestation and forest fires in the Amazon. As you mentioned, we've seen deforestation climbing for the last four months uh, compared to previous years. And as we enter August and September, which traditionally are the worst months for forest fires, we expect to see that happening as well. Brazil is facing the worst drought in 91 years. And so many people are concerned about what the next couple months are going to bring. The government has actually recognized that this is a problem and they've sent troops to the Amazon um, in an effort to curb illegal deforestation. And they've also imposed a ban on forest fires in the region for the next couple months. The government has done this in the past, however, um, and it hasn't worked in part because the military just doesn't have the expertise or the resources. And Brazil's traditional environmental protection agency, Obama, has really been sidelined and understaffed under the current government. So many people are watching and are concerned that as bad as it has already been, it's only going to get worse. Thanks. Uh, I want to I want to get some general uh, observations about what's happening around the region before we then start to peel back the onion. So Anya's given us a, a shot, a snapshot of what's happening in Brazil. Benjamin, let's next go to you. What observations would you make about Argentina or any other country? 
Yeah, I mean, next door in Argentina, John, there's a similar climate-related catastrophe underway. It's also related to drought. It has implications for shipping. Um, what we have is a 77-year low in the water level of the Paraná River, which runs from southern Brazil through Paraguay and Argentina. And it's this major artery for transportation, mostly of not only industrial, but, but farm goods coming from cities like Rosario in Argentina and heading to the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, you have ships that can't be on the river right now ships that are running well below capacity and no expectation that this is going to improve anytime soon. There's different potential causes of this in the short term, including issues related to deforestation in Brazil. But most observers think it's climate related and it's enormously disruptive right now. Thanks, Cindy. We we tend to talk about these things as uh, being the province of individual countries. But of course, when it comes to climate change, like many other issues, the pandemic, Really, borders have limited application. What are your observations about what's happening around the region? Well, I'd like to focus for a moment on Central America, where climate issues have increasingly become a driver of migration. Like my other colleagues, unfortunately, it's the worst drought in Central America in 40 years over a 10-year period. In last November, there were two back-to-back just devastating um, hurricanes destroying livelihoods, um, causing billions of dollars in damage for countries that are already struggling economically. And this is not even taking into account, you know, the devastation of COVID-19. And, you know, there's a couple of things that I think are really important in the Central American context. Coffee is a major export crop. And as we know, coffee farming is by family units, small and at most medium-sized um, farms. And because of climate change impacts, the amount of coffee being grown in Central America has literally been cut in half from 25% of the land devoted to coffee cultivation, now only 12%. And similarly, a, a devastating crop disease known as coffee rust disease has affected tens of thousands of producers and reduced jobs basically cut in half the number of jobs in the coffee sector. So, you know, Central America is another place that is experiencing greater frequency of storms and floods, but also historic long-term drought. So the situation is very dire as well. Andrew Rudman. Thanks, John. Uh, a couple of things. Mexico is is also facing a, a drought, not not to be left out with about uh, 20% of the country now in extreme drought and, and fully 85% suffering some amount of drought. And in fact, the reservoir, the main reservoir for Mexico City, one of the largest cities in the world, is only one third full. So there's a threat, just like everybody's mentioned in other countries. There's also with Mexico a, a kind of interesting uh, binational impact in that the US and Mexico have treaties that date back to as early as 1944 that govern how water is shared on the Colorado and the Rio Grande rivers. And the U.S. gives Mexico water from, from the Colorado and Mexico shares water from the Rio Grande. And in the past years, uh, that those treaties were negotiated long before there was such so much population growth. And importantly, obviously, don't take into account weather challenges. So Mexico having to, quote unquote, pay its water debt last year caused a number of problems. And that as everyone's alluded to, leads to limitations on agriculture, which causes more displacement, causes more migration. So, you know, all these things, unfortunately, are connected. 
Chris, you know, I, I purposely saved you for last with the notion that geography is destiny. And you're taking a look at a country that sits farthest to the north on the continent. Is it providing the kind of advantages that one would suspect, or is Canada also part of this mix? Well, it's a bit shocking for the Canadians. Um, on July 1st, Canada Day, they recorded the highest temperature ever in Canada in a town called Lytton, British Columbia. Uh, up in the mountains, they recorded 49.6 degrees centigrade, which uh, for those of us who are still on the imperial system is 121 uh, 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, never had that temperature in Canada ever. Uh, and obviously, uh, one of the challenges of being in British Columbia and Canada is that you don't have air conditioning necessarily. So it's really hard to beat the heat. There's not a lot of options. But that plays out in other ways, too. That heat has made British Columbia's forests particularly vulnerable to forest fires. And so the forest fires have been very bad this year. A little bright spot, uh, and a thank you to uh, Andrew Rudman's uh, country. The Mexicans have sent 100 firefighters north to help with the BC fires this year. And that's something that going all the way back to Hurricane Katrina, we've been talking about ways to build North American mutual assistance in times of disaster. This is a really important, I think, gesture from Mexico to try to help out the Canadians in combating one of the big effects of climate change. And I think in that sense, a promising sign. But Maybe going the other way, um, the U.S. and Canada have been negotiating the Columbia River Treaty. We need to do an update to that treaty. We've been working on this since 2018. The hope is that we can have fewer, bigger dams, but let the water flow continue to go all the way out to the Pacific. But one of the consequences, as Andrew said, of, of the climate changes has been a relatively low flow on the Columbia River. And that complicates how we share the water among dams and drinking water for the for a large area of the Pacific Northwest. So definitely something that affects Canada as well. Uh, Chris, that uh, uh, Mexican firefighters in BC is a classic good news, bad news situation, right? In that it's all about cooperation, the good news, but this may become an annual event, which is is the bad news. Benjamin, we often, maybe because we're a group of public policy wonks, are always looking at what governments are doing or should be doing or might be doing. Uh, you've made the point in previous discussions that so much of the uh, resources have been so focused on the pandemic that climate change in this regard becomes the classic example of lots of talk, but little action. It's true. I mean, in a sense, though, the pandemic is an opportunity for the region to really make progress on addressing climate change. And you think now the case is pretty compelling. I mean, we've just heard this long, terrifying list of climate-related catastrophes from excessive heat and, and forest fires, from droughts disrupting you know, exports as the region tries to recover. Well, there's these billions of dollars the region is spending to try to get economic activity back together. And so one would think here's an opportunity like is happening in Europe and the United States to drive the transition away from you know, fossil fuel dependent industries. And we're simply not seeing it. There's all these outside institutions tracking what percentage of pandemic stimulus spending is going to green projects. I think in Latin America, it's something like 3%. It's about, you know, less than $2 billion of nearly $50 billion that's being spent is going towards the kind of projects that will address climate change. So, you know, this wake up call that we've just heard actually hasn't awakened policymakers in Latin America. Cindy. Yeah, I think, you know, another big part of the problem is that in Latin America, countries don't consider themselves countries that have caused climate change, rather that they are on the receiving end of the damage. And so there's a lot of expectation, at least for years, um, until the effects, you know, have gotten so much more severe. Recently, there was a sense that 
climate action needed to be taken by the big polluters, the countries that have pumped, you know, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere for a long time. And that's not the case for most Latin American countries. And I think that as much as people know that that's the case, that Latin American countries per se, even though they export oil and petrochemicals and and coal in great quantities, they're still, you know, they are not emitters themselves of a lot of greenhouse gas. And yet the impacts have become so devastating that there are a few countries that um, are not paying attention to this. And it, and it's also really, you know, when you have the pandemic and you have millions of people dying and, and you know, a healthcare sector that's really stressed, people set priorities and somehow climate change becomes something, even though people know it's not theoretical, it feels like it's more, it, it's not as immediate as getting people fed and, you know, healthy after they've been stricken by COVID. So it's a very, very difficult time when, you know, economies have just been devastated. You know, you talk to climate experts and, and their question is, how immediate does it have to become in the face of all of the things that we're seeing that even the most grudging skeptics about climate change are beginning to acknowledge as part of the problem? Andrew Redman. Thanks, John. I was just going to pick up on a couple of points that, that Benjamin and, and Cindy made, really sort of the, the response to climate change and, and, and spending on, on the pandemic. Mexico really hasn't spent on pandemic recovery. And, and uh, we've talked about this before, the fact that Lopez Obrador's energy policy, which relies heavily on fossil fuels, really does seem to be going in the in the opposite direction, if you will, to the move more toward renewables. And that's going to cause problems for Mexico and also problems bilaterally, given the attention that the Biden administration is is placing on. Now, how do you any sense on how you might reverse that, Andrew? Because, look, the temptation for most governments is to go for that low hanging fruit to juice the economy as quickly as possible. And that often seems to involve uh, fossil fuel. Well, that, well, that's true. In, in the Mexican case, uh, Lopez Obrador AMLO uh, is is really a fiscal conservative and was adamant that Mexico wouldn't take on additional debt. So he has not spent on pandemic recovery. Uh, he's cut the bureaucracy. He's cut a lot on spending, but yet is is really committed to restoring Pemex's grandeur really of, of the 1970s. And, and that's, of course, fossil fuel. So I think uh, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think it's pretty clear that there's going to be some tension, given that he, I, I'm not sure I would say that AMLO is a climate change denier, but he is certainly not at the forefront of, of addressing it. And, and Anya might want to comment in a similar vein. Anya. Well, similar to what Andrew was saying in Mexico, the Brazilian federal government has not been at the forefront of, of leading the charge when it comes to responding to climate change. And in many ways, Brazil really has the capacity to be, you know, a green economic power. Much of, you know, the Brazilian energy matrix is dependent on hydropower and other forms of renewables. Obviously, hydro is complicated right now because of the drought. But it also has, you know, a very strong agriculture sector, which is increasingly sustainable. So Brazil has the capacity. And where you're seeing a lot of progress is in the private sector, in civil society, with subnational governments. Uh, the consortium of Amazon governors, for example, are now negotiating directly with international organizations and investors. Um, they're submitting a petition to the LEAF Coalition to ask for funding. And so in Brazil, we are seeing progress, even if it's not being coordinated and led at the national level. Chris Sands. 
Well, I think that the international level is also going to become increasingly important this year. All the countries of the region are trying to recover from COVID. We have Glasgow coming up, the next UN climate change talks. And one thing that we focused on at the international level is cooperation and reducing emissions at home. But several countries, and this goes back, I think, to the Mexico City uh, round of the UN talks, uh, have been proposing that there needs to be aid tied to green, greener development, greater, greener economic development. It's something that President Biden in the United States talks about, building back better, but including greener solutions. Those can be great, but they are expensive. And countries like Canada that are big contributors to international aid are going to have to prioritize uh, climate change in their aid programs, but also step it up a little bit. And that's going to be a tough sell at a time when the economies are recovering, but so important. Not surprisingly, because of the enormity of, of the topic, we're, we're running short on time. And before we close, I, I wonder if each of you could talk about something we haven't explicitly focused on yet, which is public opinion. What, what, what do populists think? You know, as, as you mentioned in the case of AMLO, Andrew, and Anya in the, in the case of Brazil and Bolsonaro, we, we don't see active climate denial in the way that we once did, but we certainly don't see people stepping up to be champions either in many cases. And I wonder what is the public sentiment across the region? And, and is that building in any way that could become a political movement and could have implications longer term? Benjamin, can we begin with you? Yeah, I mean, I think Latin America has a huge advantage over the United States, for example, in that climate change is not a partisan issue in most of the region. And so polling clearly shows that people are concerned about climate change and therefore presumably open to you know, progressive climate policy. Now, what Cindy said is absolutely true. It may not be the top priority for lots of people in Latin America as they still struggle with new waves of the pandemic and all the devastating economic consequences. And so, you know, economic recovery in a more immediate sense, public health issues will predominate the discussions. That said, again, I think that the fact that it's not a partisan issue, there's no ideology, there's very little misinformation about climate change is a helpful foundation upon which to build public support for more ambitious climate responses. Cindy, you wonder how many uh, hundred year storms every other year does it take before you start to see a political movement that, that gains traction? Well, the, the real question is, you know, whether the people who are affected by those climate catastrophes have much of a voice in the policies of their governments at all. And I think that that's a really sad reality is that the literally millions of people who have lost their homes, lost their livelihoods as a result of last year's hurricanes are not people that necessarily call the shots in Honduras or, or Guatemala uh, or Nicaragua or even El Salvador. So people, unfortunately, have much more pressing needs right now. The Biden administration made its first overture to the region when it convened a big climate conference in Washington in which Latin America was heavily represented. But that's not the face of the United States that Latin American countries were asking for at this particular time. They were looking for help on the economic front and on the health front. Chris Sands. Well, I, I think unlike parts of Latin America, there are still some partisan differences on climate change in Canada, driven mostly by the fact that Canada is also a big energy producer. And that includes oil and gas, of course, but also includes things like hydroelectricity, which are affected by changing water levels. 
Canada is also the number one foreign supplier of energy to the United States. And so the United States debate about climate change has a big impact on Canada's potential for economic recovery. And as different regions of Canada pull against each other, it's hard to build consensus. But maybe as we see this kind of extreme weather and the consequences of climate change really starting to affect all regions of Canada, we'll have a more balanced discussion. Canada is not going to be able to solve this problem alone, but it could be a big contributor to solving this problem globally and particularly to helping the United States solve this problem here as well. Andrew Rudman. So, thanks, John. I, I think Mexico sits sort of in the middle appropriately of, of what Cindy was talking about in terms of you know climate change not being the, the voters' most immediate concern right now with the economy and uh, health issues. And, and Mexico, in fact, has a, a green movement. It's not ironically uh, led by the Green Party in Mexico, but there is a green movement that, you know, for example, Mexico has really strict controls on the use of styrofoam, you know, one-time use plastics and things like that, great, more stringent than here. And, and you have a president, uh, Lopez Obrador, who, as Chris was alluding to with Canada, Mexico is a big energy producer, and uh, AMLO does want to revitalize Pemex. So I, I think there's some interesting, uh, you know, once again, Mexico is sort of straddling it, sort of North America and sort of Latin America. And this is an example where that plays out. Anya, you were generous enough to kick things off. So your penalty, whether you accept it or not, is the final word. Well, I, I think, you know, it's a mixed bag um, is what I would say. So a poll in Brazil earlier this year found that three quarters, a little bit more than three quarters of Brazilians thought that Brazil's environmental stance had damaged their country and believed that the government should take stronger steps to protect the environment, even if there was an economic cost. And so I think that shows, you know, that Brazilians are paying attention and they do care about this issue. Whereas, you know, historically, people in Sao Paulo and Rio, to them, the Amazon was as far away as it was to you or me. So this is changing. The challenge, and, and we'll find out, you know, in 2022, when Brazilians go to the polls and elect their next president, whether this, you know, awareness and interest will translate into electoral results. And I think that's what many people are watching and waiting to see. Anya, thank you. Thank you, Benjamin, Cindy, Chris, and Andrew as well. We look forward to hearing more from you in future episodes. And I, I know we'll be revisiting this topic, right? This is not going away anytime soon. Uh, I'd like to tell our listeners that America's 360 is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz and Cecily Fasanella with the assistance of Emily Allen, Isabella Canava, James Chabin, Barbara Simati, Manuela Jimenez, Zavi Delgado, and Sam Vicroy. None of this happens without all of them. And of course, thanks to you, our faithful listeners. We hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, for all of us at the Wilson Center and America's 360, I'm John Molusky. Thanks for joining us. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.